Now have you opened your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. And please, when you find your place, stand for the reading of God's holy word. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, in white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The voice, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Reading the word, may be seated. We've now come to that point in Revelation where we are on the, the final of the, the seven letters to the churches. This, of course, is the famous Church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church. This really is, you know, the the letter that is the, the hardest to read because if this was a report card, the, the Laodiceans would open it up and say F F. F, F, F. There would be nothing good on that report card. Nothing to write home to say, well, at least they try. They don't even try. They're sleeping through class. But there's nothing good that the Lord commends them for. It is only rebuke. I pray that that, that, that church would never be named among any of us in any churches we, we have ever attended. This is truly the, a very harsh warning to this church. But it is also a warning that is full of grace. Christ does not pronounce judgment immediately on this church. He could have done them like Saddam and Gomorrah and immediately pronounced judgment. But he is giving them a time to repent. So I encourage you to listen, listen to the words that Jesus has to this church. Because we may one day find ourselves or our family or our friends or maybe a church we're in, in this situation. But God has words for us to hear that, that give us hope. I want us to give us a little background on, on these seven letters. These seven letters are, are very real churches in, in the day of the Apostle John. But this, this, these letters are also prophetic. So when we, I say that, what I'm saying is these seven letters they are a view of the history of the church till the coming of Christ. When we speak about Revelation chapter 4, we're going to speak about the church being in heaven. You actually won't see the church talked about again till Revelation chapter 22. What does that mean? The church has gone home. Amen. Amen. We, that should excite you that the church gets to go home. Unless you want to endure the judgment that is coming. We should not want to endure that. We should not want anyone to endure that. Our passion should be to, to have members become part of the church, receive Jesus, so they don't have to endure that. But if you were to look and spread out the history of the church and look at the commendations and the rebukes to all these letters... You'll see it throughout history. And the final one is Laodicea. 
It is the, the church of the apostasy. The church that has fallen away has left the true teaching of the gospel. Now I say that I want us to understand that there is a difference between apostasy and heresy. Heresy is purposely teaching false doctrine. This church has fallen into apostasy because they've had leaders who have not held, held them firm to what the true teaching is. And so they grow up in these churches and they grow up thinking that this is the true gospel. They, they have not been shown the true gospel and therefore they, they are apostate churches. They have left the true way, but many of them do not even realize they have left the true way. They don't realize what they are teaching is false and heretical. And about the time of 1900, we, we've seen this happening in our country and across the world. Over and over again, if, if you look at the history of the church worldwide, um, not, not just looking at denominations that we know of today, but throughout the history of the church for the first 1900 years, there was very few segmentations in the church. There was just the church. You know, then, then over a period of time, the church starts to split. You see this in the middle letters to the churches. You have the Roman Catholics and the Orthodox. And then finally the warning of God comes in the Reformation. And then you see other groups slowly start to pop up, but there's just three or four. You have your Baptists, your Lutherans, your Methodists, your, uh, your Presbyterians, and eventually your Episcopalians. You know, four or five groups, but they all held to those core reform beliefs. We would disagree about the small things, but the core of the gospel we would agree with them on. And then what happened in the 1900s? People started teaching and going away from the true gospel. They started teaching that this is not the actual word of God. That this is just a book of good teachings of moral values. And you have what we call a liberal and a conservative divide in the church. Every single denomination fell into this apostasy. Everyone except for one. And I don't brag about it because it's ours, but it, because ours is the one that has demanded us to hold firm to the word of God. If it did not, we would not be a part of them. And, and they are... They are facing very real issues today as we face. We, as a church body, have, have to find a way in this world to declare the truth, even when the world says what, what we say is truth is hateful. We need to be able to show the love of Christ with grace. This is a, a very hard thing to do in this world, because it's very easy to get very judgmental and say, God says that is an abomination. You need to turn away and repent right now. But I want you to think of when you heard the gospel. You were invited to come and receive Jesus. And when you receive Jesus and the Holy Spirit enters in you, what you will see is the Holy Spirit will convict you of what is wrong in your life. Too often, the, the church in America has told people they are going to hell, which is accurate and true. But they have not really shown the grace of the gospel. They have not shown the grace that, that God has offered. We have expected people to come to Christ perfect, Yes, that we need to be in repentance when we come forward to Christ. But we also need to realize that this process of sanctification takes a lifetime. It does not happen overnight. Do not expect, brothers and sisters, that, that come to Christ to be perfect overnight. It will take time. I am yet perfect. I am not yet perfect. I have a ways to go. Sure, many, many decades till the Lord returns. But we all need to be making sure we are, we are seeking out God, allowing Him to convict. It is not easy being convicted. I can tell you surely this week was not an easy week for me. And there, was, there was a lot going on. And, and when, when God breaks you down, He breaks you down. Yeah. God's gentle with some people. He's usually not gentle with me. He smacks me to the floor pretty quickly. But it is a wonderful thing because when you are in that place where you have to trust in God for all your needs... 
you are in the best place in this entire world. You really are. Because you stop trying to do it yourself. You, you smash all those idols you've made. And, and you begin to, to see things how they truly are. See that God is in control. And there's nothing God can't do. There's nothing God can't do with this little church that we look at. To God, this is not a little church. This is the church in Aurora. And he would have a letter to write to us. He would have good things to commend us on. And he would have some rebukes. But we're not Laodicea. But we're not quite Philadelphia either. Now I want us to look at the, the phrase hot and cold water that is one that, that should stand out to you. What I want you to realize is this hot and cold water is probably not what you think it is. A lot of people will read this and think, well, the hot water represents those that are on fire for the Lord. We should want everyone to be on fire for the Lord. Amen? Amen. Who wants somebody to be ice cold water for the Lord? No, we don't like that, do we? Then why do we read it as Jesus is saying, I'd rather you be cold? Does Jesus want you against him? No. We read it wrong. This is the reality of what Jesus is doing. There are two nearby cities, Hierapolis, which is about six miles from Laodicea, was famous for its hot springs. The average temperature in those springs was 95 degrees. Understand, when Jesus said, I would rather you be hot, he's talking about that spring water that the Laodiceans knew very well. And there was another town nearby, about 11 miles to the south, called Colossus. And there they had pure drinking water that was ice cold in the rivers. It needed no ice. You could just pick it up and drink it, and it would satisfy your thirst completely. So Laodicea had this problem. Because Laodicea was this very rich town. It could really do whatever it wanted. It had the best banks in the world at that time. It had the best medicine. It had everything a town could possibly want except one thing, drinking water. Now, in, in today's day and age, we have these wonderful plumbing systems, and, and we, we have companies that, that live around us that, that make our water clean and cold and edible for us. We could get, take a cup of water and just open the spout in the sink and take a drink. Well, those in Laodicea could not do that. So they created this, this wonderful um, system out of stone it was basically a plumbing system for their day to route water to Laodicea. But what, what would happen by the time the six miles of the hot spring water would come? It would be lukewarm. And what would happen for the 11 miles from the cold water would come? The sun heats the stone up and it becomes lukewarm. But even worse than that, the stone they used caused the water to turn rancid. And when they would drink the water in Laodicea, it would cause instant vomit to spew out of the drinker's mouth. So understand clearly the, the imagery that Jesus is using here. <coughs> Jesus desires no one to be against him. He desires us all to have that hot, fiery passion for him. What he is saying is that the works that I know you have, Laodicea, you are like this water. You claim to be good. You claim to be hot or you claim to be cold. You, you claim that your water will relax my muscles or, or satisfy the quench of my thirst. But in reality, your water makes me want to spit you out. That is what he is saying to Laodicea. You want to be part of that church? The vomit-inducing church? You ever been to one of those? It's not fun. You go there and you... You're ready to worship and hear the message of God preached and you just want to leave and, oh, that was horrible. 
That was a cup of Laodicean water. Well, we can market that someday. But Jesus tells them, I know your works. I want us to remind everyone here that Jesus knew every person in Laodicea. He knows everyone here. He, he knows the desires of your heart, whether they be good or evil. He knows what you've done throughout the week. He knows what I've done, what I go through at work. He knows our family. He knows every problem you're facing. And he knows every deed you've done, whether good or evil. Jesus knows them perfectly. And he, he tells them that they're lukewarm because of their works. I pray we would never be considered lukewarm. But I want to think about what he says about them, why they are lukewarm. He says, for you say, now notice the word say here. This is why they're considered lukewarm by our Lord. You say, I am rich. You say, I have prospered. Ever been to a church that talks about prosperity? Understand that Christ determines your prosperity, not, not what you believe. Amen. He says, you, you have said, I need nothing. What is the thing you need most right now? Think about it. Think about it. What do you need most? We all face different things in our life. What do you need? God knows exactly what you need. He said, for you say, say all these things, not realizing that in fact, you are not rich, but wretched. You have not prospered, but you're pitiable. You say you need nothing, but you are poor, blind, and naked. One of the things you don't see right here in the text, but historians tell us that the finest clothes in all the world during that time came from, guess what town? Laodicea. They had these unique fiber cottons that were only available in that region. And so they, they made some of the finest clothes. They compared it to the cotton, the material that they would have made it. And it came in black, so it was very desirable, especially by soldiers. And, and so they, they, they would, they boistered themselves up and they had this ego about how great their town was. They were so rich, in fact, that in AD 60, an earthquake leveled their town. You know, right, right now out in California, we have an issue with the, the tallest dam in the country. It is about to break apart. Early estimates say at minimum it'll cost $100 million to repair. $100 million. We could go there ready to, to secede from the United States, and now they're asking us in Washington, D.C. to declare a state of emergency and give them $100 million. Well, when this earthquake leveled their town, they didn't even need to ask Rome for any money. They rebuilt it almost instantly, as fast as the workers could go. That is the kind of money Laodicea had. They were a very rich town indeed. They had the very best medicine in the entire world. That's why Jesus says you are poor. Let me put salve on your eyes so that you can realize that you are blind. They trusted in their wealth. They trusted in their medicine. For a great irony here is that, uh, what is the wealthiest country in the world? You should know. The United States. Who has the best medicine in the world? The United States. Who has who the highest, the most number of uh, fashion designers in the world? The United States. You can literally look at Laodicea and read, United States, I, I know your problems. Our problems are we trust in our money. We trust in our own abilities to produce money. We trust in our doctors, in our medicine to cure diseases. They don't always cure. But there is one who, who can heal perfectly. 
There is one who is offering them, showing them that they are blind. That they think they, they have these best fashion designers, but spiritually, before God, they are absolutely naked. Did you ever come to church naked? No. Would you stand before God naked? That is what the church in Laodicea is doing. They think they are clothed with these fine clothes, but they are truly the, the, the emperor who, who has been fooled, who thinks he's wearing this beautiful garment that, that can't be seen, and in fact he is naked, and the whole world is laughing at him. Christ is telling this church that you are naked, that I would have you buy clothes from me, so that your shame would be covered. Pure clothes, white clothes, clothes promised to all who call on the name of Jesus Christ. What do people wear in heaven? White robes. Yeah. I know we like to go in the Old Testament and talk about the, the robe of many colors. You will not see that in heaven. You will see people clothed in white, for it represents purity. There's no stain of sin on those clothes, no dirt. But here, here they are, people that, that don't think they have need of anything, but Jesus shows them that they need him, and they need him completely. The problem we have in, in the church in Laodicea and the church in America is we, we have this idea that what we really need is Jesus for salvation. And that is a true statement. Amen? Amen. We need Jesus for salvation. For that great day of judgment, we talk often about what God's wrath will be poured out on the whole world and on every sinner who has ever denied Jesus Christ. You need salvation from that day. Amen? Amen. What else do you need? I asked you, what do you need right now? What is your greatest need? This day and every day, your greatest need is Jesus Christ. Amen. You need him every day. Your greatest need is not your bills. Your greatest need is not your family or friends who, don't, who are, are fighting with you and who don't like your faith and who are giving you a hard time. That is not your greatest need. Your greatest need is not even the salvation of your family and friends. Your greatest need each and every day is Jesus Christ. You need him for everything. He is your master if you call him Lord. Understand that. But too often, and, and I've been guilty of this as well, we, we look out at the world and say, oh, i got all these bills, and I need to work two jobs. Who are we making master? We're making ourselves the master. You need to repent of that. It's something I had to do this week. I realized I, I trusted in the, the money of my job more than I trusted in God to provide. That is something I had to repent of. And I encourage you all to seek out Jesus to provide for your needs. Don't seek out yourself. Seek out his kingdom. For the word of God says, seek his kingdom and all these things will be added to you. But too often we focus on, on the problem that we're facing and we're not focusing on Jesus. We tend to be like Peter, right? We hear about Jesus and the salvation that he offers. And Peter sees Jesus walking out on the water. And he says, Lord, bid me to come out and walk with you. And we often talk about how, how Jesus walks on water. I even have a t-shirt that says, My life, God walks on water. But the reality is, Peter also walked on water. But what happens next? The moment he takes his eye off his Lord, down in there, he sinks. He, he focuses on the storms all around him. All, all the hardships that he's going through. All the things that could possibly go wrong. And he, with his fingertips barely above water, he says, Save me, Lord. Each and every day we need to be saying, save me, Lord. Save me from the mess I've made out of everything. Jesus, 
addresses himself rightly as the amen. What does amen mean? Let it be. Let it be. It means let it be. It means that you agree what has been what has been stated and you testify that it is truth. When you hear a song that declares something about God and you end it and you're clapping getting all Baptocostals, Brother Dave says, and you say amen, you are saying you agree with what was just spoken and you testify that it is the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. I am the amen. I am trustworthy and true. You can trust in me. I will never let you down. And that is the only one in the entire world that will not let you down. I will let you down. Your family will let you down. Your spouse will let you down. Your kids, your parents, so on and so on. Your job will let you down. Jesus will never, ever let you down. So also, he's called the counselor. He says, take counsel from me. This harkens back to Isaiah chapter 9. Mighty God, wonderful counselor. Laodicea is the only church that is told to take counsel from the Lord. Think about that. You know, you know what else America has the most of? Psychologists and psychotherapists. Why is that? Because we have all this money in the world, but it doesn't make us happy. It, we think it makes us happy. We think if only, only if I, I could win that lottery. What if the lottery was a billion dollars? Would you take the, the lottery of a billion dollars, or would you rather be in the place of trusting Jesus to provide for your needs? And guarantee the majority of this country would take the billion dollars. Because we think that money will make us happy. You know, over 90% of lottery winners go bankrupt within five years. Money can't buy you happiness. It can buy you stuff, which will make you happy for a very short period of time. But Jesus doesn't offer us happiness. He offers us joy and peace that passes all understanding. It is why the Christian, when they have lost their loved one, could stand up and have joy and peace in that moment, even when the world says you should be in shatters. You should be utterly destroyed. But we can have joy because we have a hope. As our church sign says, we have a new hope. Amen. That at, at our very last breath, we will go home and we will be in glory and we will be with all those that have gone to be in glory before us who have trusted in Jesus Christ. Amen. We have that true hope, that true joy, that peace that passes all understanding that says it's going to be okay. It doesn't matter how much the, the companies tell you you owe them. At the end of the day, when you go home, you don't owe them a darn cent. You can't take that stuff that you can buy with a billion dollars with you. It can't buy your way into heaven. It can't buy you a seat next to Jesus' throne. He says, I offer you counsel. Please take it. This role counsel has kind of a double meaning. It is also the same word we would use for a lawyer. Jesus is offering you legal counsel. Why? Because you're going to stand before a judge. And you have a choice. You could be like some of the crazy people we have in this world who want to go before a judge and say, I will represent myself because I am so smart. I know all the legal ways of the law and can negotiate this and show you that I am innocent. And on the other side, the prosecuting attorney, who's the prosecuting attorney? You know his name. Prosecuting attorney against your sins is Satan. He is the one that will accuse you day and night. He's like a roaring lion ready to devour you. And Jesus comes up to you and he says, 
take my counsel. Let me defend you. Let me intercede on your behalf. But you being the arrogant person you are, you say, I don't need you, Jesus. I don't need your death on the cross. I got this. I'll take care of it. And you go before the judge. And then you look up at the judge and you realize the judge is in fact Jesus, who you've just denied before the world. And he's hearing accusation after accusation that Satan has laid against you. And you know what the, the horrifying reality is? Is that every accusation Satan has laid against you is accurate and true. Satan doesn't have to lie about his accusations. Satan goes before and says, this man has committed this sin and this sin and this sin and this sin. And you know why Satan is such a great lawyer? Because he's a great witness. He could call upon himself and say, I was the one who tempted him and he broke your commandment, God. Over and over. He even denied you. Something Satan himself has never done. How many of us deny the Lord? How many of us refuse to take the good counsel of Christ? I pray this day you will receive the counsel that Christ has offered you. It will cost you nothing. It will set you free. But what does Jesus ask of you for his counsel? He asks you to, to declare him to the world. I was talking in our Sunday school class. What is the first thing that Jesus says to the disciples he calls? Think of Peter and John and Andrew and James. When they're called out of their boats, what does Jesus say to them? I'll make you fishers of men. It's the number one mark of disciples. If I were to ask you all right here, right now, are you disciples of Jesus, what would you say? I hope you would say yes. If you claim Jesus, you better be one of his disciples. Or you are lukewarm like the Laodiceans. Would you say you're fishermen of men? If you cannot proudly say that, you cannot proudly call yourself a disciple. That is the true mark of discipleship. That you fish for men. That you care about the souls of men. We are here for a very short period of time. And then we will go home. We are like the grass. You look out at the grass and it's dirty and muddy and brown. That, that grass will soon die. It will be gone. It will be burnt up. These bodies will, will be rent. They'll be torn. They'll give away to death. But our time here is precious. There are many in our lives we describe as weeds who have denied Christ. We need to be those fishermen and men and, and declare what Christ has done. Understand what Peter and, and John, when they first got out of the boats, they weren't. They weren't fishermen in the way Jesus was describing. They were fishing for fish. They, they were not laying out and offering the, the, the bait of Jesus Christ, offering the, the true hope. For with Christ, there is no hook. There's only, only beautiful good news. But the reality is it took them years to become fishers of men. Discipleship is not something we do overnight. You don't make an altar call and you wake up tomorrow and say, look at me, I'm a full, mature, sanctified disciple of Jesus Christ. It makes me cringe when I hear of churches calling their pastors apostles. But as if somehow they've become fully sanctified in this life, that they would dare take up that, that title. The reality is sanctification takes a lifetime. Being a disciple is something we do our entire lives. And when we are mature disciples, we are ones who will call others to Christ call others to get down on their knee and to accept their Lord and to become fishers of men. Disciples make other disciples. They don't just learn what the Word says. That is part of being a disciple. 
We need to be in the Word. We need to be in prayer. But we need to be part of evangelizing. And in this country, for some reason, we were scared to do that. We're scared to tell other people about Jesus. Because we're afraid that what they may think of us. Yes, you may put things out there and, and say things to others that loses you friends. They lose you family members. But would you rather lose your friend or your Lord? It says, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. You do not want your lawyer, Jesus, denying you before the judge. That will not be a pretty scene for you. But there's too many in this world that are part of the Laodicean church that will deny him. And they will stand up there believing that they are true disciples, that they have lived their life for Christ, when in fact they have come to church on Sunday morning, they sing some songs, and that's the extent of their discipleship. Maybe if they're really committed Americans, they'll pray before their meals. Or maybe they'll read their Bible more than in the pew on Sunday morning. We are called to be disciples. A disciple literally means a student. The purpose of, of, this, of a disciple in those days was to become like the teacher. We are called to become like Christ. That's what Romans talks about. You have been predestined to conform to the image of the Son. That's what you are a disciple for, is to become like Christ. To do the things as He did. To declare the hope of the Gospel. The good news that, that the Father sent His Son to die for us. So that we may have salvation. That we may have life truly. Have it abundantly. Not just in this world. We have too many that focus on this world. Don't worry about the stuff of this world. Focus on the world to come. Amen. Where your body will not decay. You don't have to worry about how many calories you partake in the Baptist buffet. Amen. All right. You won't have to worry about those things. You won't have to worry if you need to replace the roof. Or if your plumbing's going bad. Those are things you don't have to worry about. Because you have a, a master craftsman. A carpenter beyond anything you could imagine. Ever, ever wonder how, why so many of these godly men that are called by God are, are carpenters? You look at Noah, he builds this massive ark to, to hold two of every kind that are on the earth. Jesus, the very Son of God, is a carpenter. And he says that he has gone prepared a place for you. What we have to expect in the life to come is far more glorious than this life. So let us be about that life now. Let us be about the kingdom now. We should not wait. Because we have the same need that the Laodiceans had. For, for in our culture, it's so easy to depend on our own stuff that we have, the own money that we accrue, our own skills. It's so easy to get in that mindset, to make ourselves out to be God, and to worship ourselves to the way we live. But we are called to worship God and to depend on Him. So I encourage you today, if, if you, you are, you're struggling with idolatry of money, to lay that aside and buy gold from Jesus Christ. Pure gold refined by his fire. There's nothing more valuable, monetarily speaking, in all the world. Take upon that white garment that he offers to you freely. The garments that, that the world has are, will get dirty. They will fade. They will stretch one day they'll be too big. The next day they may be too small. That, that day comes and it's time to give it to goodwill or to throw it away or make it a hand-me-down. That is not what Christ is offering you. He is offering you an eternal, glorious robe that, will, that forever will show you not as shameful and sinful, but as a purified bride worthy of her groom. Her groom is Jesus. 
He has made you holy and clean. When the Father looks upon you, he will see a righteous bride, made righteous by the blood of his Son. There's not meant to be any dirt or blood or black soot on our gown. A day will come where you'll see blood on the, the gown of Christ. For he will come and judge the entire earth. And we'll talk about that very soon. But for us now, we can partake of, of, of th these garments. It's, it's no wonder that he speaks of these garments right before the event of the rapture would take place in, in Revelation. Why? Because there's about to be a wedding feast in heaven. Amen? Amen. A wedding feast about to partake in heaven. There's a wonderful parable that Jesus gives about a wedding feast. And he says, The Father sent out people to invite all to come in to see the wedding. And there were there many that came, but there was many that did not. So he sent people out again. And some others came, and they asked him to come, but they weren't dressed in white robes. What happened? They came dressed not, not in a way worthy in respect of, of the king's son. And so they were cast out. They were not invited to the wedding feast. They weren't allowed to stay. You and I must realize that those that will partake in the wedding feast are the bride. We will be dressed in that, that white, white gown. Don't show up to the wedding in, in your jeans. Although I know I heard there was a wedding this weekend where somebody got married in their jeans, but... The, the marriage of Christ, you will be dressed in a beautiful white gown. Don't show up in a jeans and a t-shirt, because you will anger the Father greatly. His Son is worthy of respect. Mm -hmm. His Son is holy, for His Son is God. Amen. You do not go into God's presence in anything but your, your holy attire. And that is what Jesus is offering to you freely. You need to partake of it. You need to realize that through God's mercy, he has offered these words to Laodicea, the grace. He tells them to repent and have zeal for him. And that's what I'd say to you. If there's anything that is stopping you from having zeal for the Lord, repent. Turn away from it. If it's your job, give it up. I did. Whatever it is, give it up. It's not worthy. It's holding you back from what God would have you do. For his will for your life. We need to be trusting Jesus and Jesus fully. Are we trusting Jesus right now? Yes. I pray you are. Trust in him. I, I want to be very clear. Jesus called people to repentance. Amen? Amen. We don't like to talk about that very often. But Jesus call, calls everyone to repentance. But many of us, like the Laodiceans, are guilty of of not calling people to repentance, not being true fishers of men. What signal do you send when you, when you are doing that? When you've known someone your whole life, you've never once shared their testimony, you've never once shared Christ with them. What message are you sending? I want you to imagine Jesus going around and never telling people to repent. What message would Jesus be sending? You know the gospel. What, what message would he be sending? He'd be saying, it's nice to meet you. Go to hell. Too many of us Christians are telling people to go to hell by our silence and our words. We'll talk about the weather, and we'll talk about sports, we'll talk about anything under the sun, but we won't talk about our Lord Jesus. The reality is because we care more about our relationship with our friend than we do our relationship with our Lord. If we truly loved our friend, we would tell them about Jesus. Tell them what he's done for our life. Tell them that the worries and the stress and the anxiety, it's all gone. I'll tell you Wednesday morning, I had great anxiety and stress from my job. 
Wednesday afternoon, that was gone completely. Those that were here on Wednesday, you could tell I, I was in a, a place of peace and joy. God is so very good. But we must trust Him. And we must listen to His commands where He tells us, if, if you love me, you'll do what I command. That is part of His command, is to go into all the world proclaiming the gospel, making disciples. That is something we, we must be willing to do. We cannot be like the Laodiceans who are self-reliant. Jesus rebuked them for that. We must be reliant on Jesus and Jesus alone. So you can take Jesus at His word. He is the Amen. You can talk to your brothers and sisters here and listen to their testimonies that will affirm that he is the amen. We say amen to the amen. We can trade our trust and money for that purified gold that Christ offers. Take the clothing he gives that never fades, never stains. It never goes out of style, never becomes too tight. That is the clothing that he offers us. We should partake of it now. There's one last thing that Jesus says to them. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Invite me in so that I may eat with you. Understand that this was a very wealthy area. And a common thing that they did for the Roman soldiers is that they would provide a meal for them every night. What is Jesus saying to them? You're willing to feed others. You're willing to invite these pagan soldiers in to the church, into the body, and you're willing to feed them. And it is right that you do so but you're not willing to invite me in and to let me eat and have fellowship with you. What a condemning verse to end it on. Do we allow Jesus in? Do we allow him to fellowship with us and partake with us in our lives? Or are we more concerned about being out in the world and being about what the world has to offer? I pray this day that you would you would turn to Christ, that you would come down when the song is played, and you would make Him Lord this day. You would have fellowship with Him always. Don't let another day go by. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. It really is not. Christ could return today. Your heart could stop beating by the end of this day. You do not know. But what we do know is Christ is Lord. He is the Amen. He is faithful and true. Trust in Him. Let us pray. Oh, Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for this day. I thank you for all you've given us, Lord God. I thank you that, that you are the amen, that you are the one who is holy and true and trustworthy and always reliable. I thank you that you provide, Lord, for all our needs. I thank you that you call upon us to, to repent and have zeal for you, to trust in you fully. I pray, Lord, that you'd bring others here, that you would allow us to get out in this community and share the gospel, Lord, to truly be fishers of men and to, to raise up disciples to turn this community back truly to be a city of light. Lord, let that light be you. Let it shine for all the world to, to see. Open that door for us, Lord, that no man could shut. In your holy name, Jesus. Amen.